The model we have allows God to do many things, but you, we can never know whether that happened. If God exists, which I think, there is a possibility that God can in act and interfere in my life, but I can never prove it. I only have to live in faith. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm continuing my exploration of the intersection of science and religion, two seemingly incompatible paths to truth, one of which values skepticism, the other valuing faith. In my last episode, I had a great interview with Brother Guy Consolmagno, director of the Vatican Observatory. In this interview, I'm going to be interviewing a professor of applied nuclear physics. As always, if you enjoy the content that I'm providing, please hit like on your podcast app, share it with your friends. Uh, and if you would like to help spread the rational view, please come visit my patron page at www.patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Jan Blomgren is CEO and founder of INBEX, Institute of Nuclear Business Excellence, focused on nuclear power leadership. He's also CEO of Kraft Academin, a center of excellence on nuclear power technology. He's previously been professor of applied nuclear physics at Uppsala University, nuclear competence strategist at Vattenfall, and director of the Swedish Nuclear Technology Center. Dr. Blomgren, welcome to The Rational View. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me. So you have uh, recently published two books in Swedish. One is on energy supply, and the other is on science and religion. And it's entitled, Yes, God Plays Dice. I'd like to go into some depth on your philosophy and understand you know, how you balance seemingly opposing worldviews of science and religion. But first, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, are you from Sweden originally? Yeah, I was born and raised in Sweden and have lived most of my life here. However, after you get your PhD, it's customary that you go abroad for a postdoc, and I did mine in at Indiana University, Bloomington, Indiana, in the early 90s. So I spent about two years there. I see. So was your, was your upbringing uh, religious? Was your family religious? Yeah, my, my parents both uh, belonged to a church which in the U.S. would be called the Covenant Church. Uh, consider it some type of Presbyterian church. Uh, so I, I grew I grew up in that environment. Then, as many of us, I had a, a teenage period where I rebelled a little bit. I didn't I didn't want to join. Uh, however, I came back, and uh, at about the age of fifteen, I decided that uh, Christian faith, yeah, that that was for me. And since then, I'm called myself a Christian. I see. Now. In, in Sweden, is religion uh, waning or growing? I know in North America it seems to be waning quite a bit in terms of the attendance and uh, the number of people that are openly religious. What's it like in Sweden? 
Uh, well, normally America is ahead of us and we import everything from the U.S., especially when it has become outdated in the U.S. However, in this respect, <laughs> we, are, we are ahead of, of the Americans. That is, Sweden is a more secular society than U.S. is. Uh, if you make these world value surveys and so on, Sweden and Japan, we compete about being the most secular country in the world. So yeah, uh, okay. Christian faith has really been in decline for a long time. So uh, what prompted you to go into nuclear physics? Well, when I, when I was four years old, I learned to read actually by myself. Uh, and my grandpa, who was a clever man, he gave me a book on astronomy, which I was reading up and down. And, and he also gave me some other books about uh, popular science and so on. So that, that really created an interest in me in science. So all the way until my around age 14, I thought I would become an astronomer. However, at that time, I realized that I loved reading about astronomy, but I wasn't very keen about being up all night and looking into telescopes. <laughs> uh, so here, here came my next uh, teenage rebellion. Then I thought for a time that I should become a brain surgeon instead. Th there are different ways of being rebellious. Uh, two years later, when I was about 16, I, I read popular science about nuclear physics and realized that this sounded more fun. And the rest is history. That's where <laughs> I've, I've stayed on that track since. I see. I see. Interesting. So although I want to focus on the, the science and religion aspect in, the, in this episode, your your work on nuclear is also very impressive uh, and a lot of uh, my followers are very interested in, in in nuclear power as a climate mitigation uh, one of the things that we've seen is Sweden um, seems to be moving away from nuclear although you know it's a very uh, has been in the past a nuclear friendly area what's what's the public opinion like in Sweden is it is it anti-nuclear now the public opinion is strongly pro-nuclear and actually it has been, well not strong, but it has been pro or at least not anti-nuclear throughout uh, all our, the last 40-50 years or so. Uh, but it has been a political problem all along since the mid-70s we have had one or two political parties, fairly small, but that have been religiously, sorry for the pun intended, they have been religiously <laughs> against nuclear power. Uh, and it has been impossible to form a majority government without including at least one of those parties. And they, they have said that, okay, you get our votes for anything you want to do as long as we can close down a nuclear power plant or two. That's, that's Sweden on a plate. So that means we have lost half our fleet. But if you ask the general population, you always get numbers of 70 to 80 percent of people that say continue operating. And we have more people that want to build new nuclear power plants than we have people that want to close down the ones we have. Wow, that's that's a, a tough situation. I know in Canada here we've been uh, we're on a first past the post electoral system that uh, often rewards a party with minority uh, of votes with a majority government. Uh, and they're thinking, uh, and there has been a lot of discussion about moving to a, a more representative government where you're 
you have representation by by voting basically uh and so that you would have more of these minor parties getting more power um your story makes me a little bit afraid of that direction <laughs> well there there are uh, pros and cons of both systems i've lived in the us i've lived in sweden i can't tell whether uh, whether one of them is bad or it depends on the situation Sure, sure. Well, thank you for, for that update. So now let's swing back to the to the thesis here. Um, your your book on uh, science and religion. Uh, I was reading some of the some of the the advertisements on it. It states um, scientific research during the latter half of the twentieth century has led to a new worldview where random events are not only allowed but crucial to how the world works. It is entirely possible for God to exist, but we can neither prove nor disprove it. And today's scientific worldview is fully compatible with God's active intervention in the world. Uh, could you expand on this thesis for our listeners and tell us what, you know, what your book is about? Yeah, and it's always dangerous to ask academics a question because then they start lecture. And since I'm not, since I'm not an active <laughs> professor any longer, I take every chance I get to lecture an audience. Uh, we have to start not with the old Greeks, but we have to start with Newton. Uh, Newton formulated the first consistent model, uh, first theory of how the forces in physics work together and that means why the planets uh, roam around the sun and, and all of that. However, the model he used, the theory he used, that was deterministic. It didn't, it didn't involve any moment of chance. Uh, every action had a reason and every cause uh, led to a consequence and so on. That meant we got the image of the world being a big machine. And from this, it became pretty difficult to imagine a God that would interfere with the world and that would act in the world, because then God had to violate his own laws of nature. For Newton, that wasn't a problem, because he thought that God all the time was upkeeping the, the laws of nature, but his followers didn't see it that way. And they came up with a picture of God being a clockmaker. That was actually the original title of the book, but the editor changed it. Uh, <laughs> uh, the idea was that it's possible that God could have created the world, but then after having put it together, it was impossible for God to interfere. In the same sense as a clockmaker can make a fantastic clock, but when you have started the clock, he can't go in and change a few wheels here and there during the operation of it. Uh, so this was the starting point of what was called deism, that is God have created the world, but then left it. Uh, which is the starting point for atheism that came a bit later then. However, at this time, uh, most people, they, they believed in, in God anyway, so it wasn't a big problem but for the general public, but on the, in the intellectual world it was. And I claim that it was a true, it was a true problem in the sense that if the world would have been what the Newtonian mechanics said it was, it would be really difficult to, to allow at least a God that acted in the world to exist. It, it didn't work out. This was incompatible. 
However, uh, it was discovered in the early 1900s or pretty much the year 1900 and the few years thereafter that uh, in atomic nuclei uh, you have true random events. Uh, there was a big fight about this for a long time. Uh, Einstein never wanted to accept that things could happen, that you could have a, an action without a cause. Uh, and he and Niels Bohr, they were fighting about it for a long time. Einstein said, God doesn't play dice. And after some time, uh, Bohr was uh, pissed off with this and he said, stop telling God what he should do or not. And actually, that, that is also <laughs> the starting point of the title of the book. Yes, God plays dice. Uh, today we know that Einstein was wrong in this respect, but he was wrong in a good way because he asked lots of critical questions that forced Niels Bohr and all the others uh, to work hard. And in fact, some of the issues Einstein raised, they couldn't be resolved by experiments until around the year 1980 or even into 1990. So they were really good questions. Mm -hmm. I don't want to criticize Einstein. He, he was a great physicist, but he happened to be on the wrong side in this particular debate at the end. Uh, when I was a, a high school student, and now we talk around 1980, uh, in my books, it said that we now know that there are true random phenomena in the world of atomic nuclei. However, that doesn't play a role in real life because these uh, atoms, they are so small and the, these signals are so weak. So it, in normal daily life, you don't see it. You just see it in, in nuclear physics experiments and so on. However, we realized during especially the end of the 80s and a bit into the 1990s that this is no longer true uh, because we have seen that these random events although they are on atomic scale they can actually influence macroscopic phenomena uh, and, and that was an understanding which wasn't really there until in the 1980s so it's 30-40 years old so at the end of really, really the last two decades of the 20th century, we realized that these random events actually play a much more critical role than we previously thought. And that okay. changes our picture of the world. That means that since these events are truly random, it would be possible if God, for God, if God exists, to play around in the world much more than you than the Newton mechanics theory would allow. But on the other hand, uh, the price for that is that with that way of act with that view of the world, you cannot tell afterwards whether God had acted or whether it just was a random event. So what has happened is that Mm, the conflict between science and faith is actually smaller if you look at it from a true philosophical perspective today than it were 300 years ago. But on the other hand, the possibility to prove the existence of God has disappeared. You can neither prove nor disprove the existence of God. It, it has theref therefore become a matter of faith exclusively. 
but as I said, if you look at it from a philosophical point of view, the contradiction is smaller today than it has been during the last 300 years. But there is a difference, and, and, and that is when Newton was around and you actually had a true philosophical conflict, people believed in God anyway. Now we're in the situation where the conflict is smaller, that most people don't believe in God. Uh, so the perception of, of, of a conflict that is more based on the physics we had 100 or 200 years back in time rather than the physics situation today because what I'm describing is something that hasn't come into the understanding of the general public. Right, so you are, are positing that uh, because of the randomness inherent in quantum mechanical uh, events that this could be a... Uh, an avenue where the supernatural influences the natural. Is, is that a, a fair uh, summary? Yeah, and let me give a, a simple example then. Uh, back in time we said that, yeah, these, these random events, they don't affect uh, real life. But today, when you are thinking, what's happening in your brain is that very little electricity is moving in in your neurons in, in your brain, it is possible that a cosmic ray particle coming from outer space from a supernova somewhere, it hits you right this uh, second, hundreds and thousands of them, they just go through your body. A few of them, they make a nuclear reaction that releases a little electric charge, but that electric charge is so much that it can affect the way you think. So in principle, it's I mean, if, if your thought is supposed to go to the left in a, in, a, in a Y corner, it goes to the right instead and so on. So you think something else than you should have thought otherwise and so on. So in principle, it's possible that you are out walking in the street. Uh, you are supposed to turn around uh, next street corner to the left, but then a uh, uh, cosmic ray goes through your brain, you, you release a little charge and therefore you decide to go to the right instead, you smack into beautiful lady, uh, you apologize, uh, uh, you fall in love and uh, you get married, etc, etc. Uh, however, uh, so in principle it's possible that God is, is steering us by making such a random event, but it's impossible to prove it otherwise afterwards. However, I, wouldn't, I would be hesitant uh, to believe in God if that were the case, given the marriage statistics nowadays, which is not that impressive. <laughs> Indeed. So, so what is your, your view of God? Is, is God a, uh, a, an active intervener then in, in all aspects of, of life through this quantum mechanical randomness? Well, first of all, I have to say, I don't know. Uh, and I can neither prove nor disprove anything. This is a matter of faith. And that was, to me, a little bit... Well, I have to go back in time a little bit. Uh, I had a problem when I was around age 30. I had just got my PhD. I've been to the postdoc in the US. I came back to Sweden. I established myself as a young and promising scientist. Today, I'm neither young nor promising any longer. I'm just and. <laughs> uh, 
But at that time, I had some kind of 30-year crisis uh, when I, I thought that atheists, they had good arguments. I'm very happy that I had this crisis period because it forced me to start think and I realized that, hey man, I, you're supposed to be a scientist. Scientists investigate facts and try to make some kind of a synergy of all the facts. You try to build a model, a theory, go ahead, do it. So I started to challenge myself to look a bit deeper. Until that point, I've said that science and faith, it's two separate worlds. They don't touch each other. Um, they are about different things. Science is about how things happen. Faith is about why things happen. Why is, why is there a world? Uh, and a, a question which science rarely asks, it's, it's asked, how does the world function? Um, so I forced myself to use the type of research I've been involved in. Um, I looked into other areas of research, trying to make a synthesis. And that is described in the book. I'm, I'm sorry it's only available in Swedish, but I'm working on a translation. Uh, and what appeared, uh, this took at least five years, uh, I realized that the new information we had from research, as I said, from 1980 and on, showed it was possible to make, to paint this bigger picture where it is possible for a god to act in the world, but you cannot catch God with the fingers in the jar of marmalade. Uh, you can't catch God in action. So this was a bit depressing in the sense that uh, with the worldview we have today, we can neither prove nor disprove the existence of God. The model we have allows God to do many things, but you, we can never know whether that happened. Uh, but for me, it, it's a bit, bit revealing. It, it means that if God exists, which I think, there is a possibility that God can in, act and interfere in my life but I can never prove it. I only have to live in faith. So that's um, <clears throat> significantly different, I guess, than a lot of uh, people of faith, uh, especially of the, the fundamentalist stripe or even the biblical literalist stripe that are out there uh, that believe that, you know, science, a lot, you see a lot of headlines, science proves God. Um, uh, yeah, that and, headline you know, is always wrong. I, I think, think I think that drives people away rather than um, brings them in towards faith. Uh, you know, I respect your your view of um, faith as not being provable, right? It's belief in the absence of evidence. And when I was I was speaking to a, a previous guest, that was um, you know his definition of faith is that you can't have faith if you have certainty. Okay, I like that one. Yeah, I, I heard that uh, that podcast. Yeah, it, it was, um, you know, it, it's it's a refreshing view because then it's, you know, it, it's not something that you can foist on others. It's a purely subjective um, conclusion that each person comes to, right? It's not forcing people to reevaluate their science. Um, 
does your worldview um, interact with your science in any way? Is your um, belief in God uh, flavoring how you look at science? Uh, not really, but it's, a, it's an inspiration. Uh, okay, now now it's more than 10 years since I was an active scientist. Uh, but throughout that time, I never woke up in the morning and felt I don't want to go to work. It was a pleasure working. And I, and I often felt that, okay, n- now we're going to see how the world works. And that's the way I, I think it was... Uh, uh, what's his name? Steven Weinberg that said we are, we are trying to look God at the back although he was an atheist but that's a different story. So it has been inspirational definitely but but not more more than that. Um, in, in your view um, in your um, your theological view I guess is, is the word is there a a heaven? Is there a hell? Same story. I don't. Well, there is a heaven. Whether there is a hell, I don't know. Well, I don't know whether there's a heaven. I believe there is a heaven, but I don't know even whether I believe there is a hell. So, belief in heaven and everlasting life. Um, leads to the concept of a soul. Is that something that you believe in? I do. And what is it? What is it? What is a soul? I have colleagues who think that Jan Blomgren is the sum of all the atoms in my body. I find it very difficult to believe that I am just an ensemble of very many atoms. Uh, there is something else that make me unique the way I experience the world, the way I think. If you would just r- assemble all those atoms, it wouldn't be a live person. Life is something different than just a bunch of atoms. This crosses over a little bit into another interest of mine, which is artificial intelligence. And uh, I did a series of podcasts on, on that as well. Um, and I think one of the things that differentiates um, the, the the people, the vitalists, the people that believe in soul, and the the mechanists, the people that believe you can have a, a an intelligent neural network that can be um, you know programmed in a computer, for example. Um, this is one of the key differentiators between them. Some people believe you there's a special extra something in a person that makes them intelligent or makes them sentient or, or makes them an observer, say, whereas uh, computers will always be doomed to not have that spark of intellect. Um, is that, is that, does that go along with your understanding or, or your, your feeling? Are you one of those people that thinks that we'll never have a general artificial intelligence in a computer? I am very skeptical to the possibility to create true artificial intelligence. Uh, making computers resemble intelligence or being very clever at solving various types of, of problems, I have no problem with that. Uh, but intelligence that goes beyond true creativity, the human mind has a 
rational and random behavior at the same time. And that combination is what makes us intelligent. If we were only rational, only follow the prescription, we would be dead machines. If we were only creative all the time, just changing the rules all the time, nothing would be done. And that combination, the reasonable... uh, the reasonable combination to a reasonable extent of rationality and creativity, I, I'm hesitant to whether you can get that into a machine. That's, um, I think, a common viewpoint on one side of a, of a large argument that I'm not uh, able to address properly as, a, as not being an expert, but Definitely, I think there's a huge um, ongoing controversy there as the field progresses. It's so interesting to follow the the advancements in artificial intelligence. Uh, and I agree, the, the, the narrow AIs that we use uh, commonly in society right now are, are very uh, stupid, uh, one might say, to anything other than what they've been trained on. They're, they don't have the general... Um, capabilities that we come to expect in a human and it's very easy to see uh to make a contrast i think at this point uh i'm not i'm not as as convinced as you that it's not going to get beyond that uh, but it's a very interesting uh, discussion to 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 stay abreast of I, i'm not convinced i'm just skeptical prove me wrong however i let me i'm gonna <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna give you a, a piece of advice here if you go want to go to research often it's important to ask the right question uh i think there is a lack here nobody does research on artificial stupidity can we teach can we teach a computer to be stupid the same way as some human beings are stupid <laughs> I, I i find that an interesting idea go for it man <laughs> artificial stupidity research uh well yeah i guess that's a uh, something that a lot not a lot of people go into i'll, I'll give you that <laughs> Well, I'm a bit damaged because earlier today I've been in political debates, so I realized that we need to understand oh the phenomenon of stupidity, stupidity better. That is, that is a problem. Uh, politics is, is, I mean, this is one of the reasons I started this, this podcast, is, is getting rational uh, risk management, rational policy into the public arena. And I, I think, you know, our politicians are not scientists in the vast majority of cases. And the, the decision-making is, is mainly um, depending on, you know, what's going to get you the most votes. How do you best appeal to the populace? And that's not a, a bad thing in and of itself, um, except at the point where you can fool most of the people most of the time <laughs> if they're not uh, educated in the tools of science say in the, in the in the skepticism that we understand is the root of of scientific understanding um taking that a step forward into the into religion uh you know why do we need God from your standpoint? Doesn't Occam's razor make it an unnecessary postulate? 
maybe, maybe not. Uh, let me take one of my main themes in the book. There has been a large debate, especially in fundamental physics the last 30 years or so. Uh, we think now that we have a fairly decent view on the laws of nature. But that means now we can ask the question, why are the laws of nature the way they are? And here we have a problem. Uh, we have in particle physics, uh, we have the so-called standard model that describes the fantastic zoo of quarks and electrons and gluons and whatnot, everything that builds up the matter of that compose us and universe, etc., etc. It builds up everything. The problem with that, with that theory is that it contains about 15 different parameters which we cannot derive from fundamental physics. And it's proven beyond doubt that it's not just that we're stupid, uh, but these cannot be derived, they have to be measured. And then you have to ask experimental physicists, people like me, to go and measure them in the laboratories. And when you've done that, you can get the theory to work out very well. But the next question is then, these different parameters, now that we've measured all the 15 or 20, um, you can get different numbers depending on how the mathematics, but that's not important, roughly 15. Uh, then the question is, why do they have the value they do have? And it turns out that we have no reason whatsoever to believe that there is a fundamental reason for certain, certain parameters. They just happen to be what they are. But you could imagine a universe where they took another value and that wouldn't be more physically correct or not and we can't derive them from any more fundamental uh, information either. They just happen to be what they are. Uh, the next thing is that some of these parameters are extremely sensitive for making universe a habitable place where people like you and you and me, intelligent creatures, can exist. And it's in some cases it's so narrow interval that if you would change things with numbers which are compatible with changing a few atoms in the universe and so on, you would fall outside the habitable uh, universe as a result. You, you get a sterile universe if that parameter were that very little different. So there seems to be a fine-tuning mm -hmm. of the laws of nature in a way we cannot explain. That has led some scientists, not me, others, to make reverse thinking. They say that, okay, the fact that we exist means that that determines these, these parameters. They must be what they are, otherwise nobody could sit here and watch the, watch the situation. That's called the anthropic principles. And that has been a source of much debate between science and faith and, and the interplay between the two. Uh, you can now boil it down to four possibilities, essentially, why, why these parameters are the way they are. The first one, God exists and has made all those parameters, given them the exact values, so that you and I could sit here and have a chat in this podcast. For me, as a, for me as, as a Christian believer, fine. But for me as a scientist, it's a nightmare. I hate this. Because 
although I believe in God, I would like to understand how God was thinking. Hi, God, couldn't you have figured out the smarter way of doing it instead of 15 random parameters fine-tuned and we cannot figure out why? So from a scientific perspective, it's an explanation which is a non-explanation. That's the first one. Mm -hmm. Second possibility is that there is a smart reason, but we are just too dumb. We haven't figured out yet what it is. Uh, that is easy to, to say, and you can look a bit humble, and uh, you, you can look like a, like a true intellectual by saying that. So. But the problem is that it has never happened in the history of science that you have had a situation where you're close to a breakthrough where everything falls into place and you don't even have an idea, you don't have a clue. All the major revolutions in science, there have been lots of signs beforehand that something is about to happen. You have, you have found discrepancies, you have had some hints and ideas and so on. It, it doesn't come out of thin air. And in, at present, we don't even have a clue what it could be. Uh, then next possibility is that we're just extremely lucky. There is no God, but all those parameters just happen to get the right numbers. Brilliant. How lucky we are. Uh, the problem with that approach is that if you just make simple probability theory, the probability that you would get all those parameters right is 10 to the, and then you have a big number like 500 and so on. It's far more than the number of atoms in the universe. And there is one solution that works out and the rest is doesn't work out. Normally in science, we don't accept that as an explanation of things. We want something better than pure luck with those numbers. And then the last possibility, which has been the most popular, I would think, among particle theoreticians the last 20 years, that is multiple universes. Suppose that when a universe is created, these 15 parameters just by random happen to get a value. Okay, and in most cases you get a sterile universe. But universes are created here and there and popping up uh, from, from nowhere. And if you have a sufficiently large number of universes, at least uh, one of them will be habitable. And so people are talking about multiverse instead of universe. That means there are an infinite or at least super large number of universes out there. And people also speculate whether there is a parallel universe where you and I are sitting and talking with each other, but I have the beard and you don't, and things like that. <laughs> uh, I mean, that would solve, solve the problem. Then you can remove a god or you can remove the chance and so on. It just, there are just so many solutions and we happen to live in, in the one which works out. The problem with that is that you have to postulate something like 10 to the 500 different universes that you have never seen. And normally we don't make such we don't make that a starting point in science normally. So none of these mm -hmm. possibilities is really attractive. And we have, we have got stuck. Nor is it easily testable. I mean, we have access to one universe as far as we're aware. Uh, so it's, it's very difficult to make postulates about what happens in other ones if, if you have no experimental uh, access to them. Um, 
and mainly it comes down to which is the most elegant mathematically <laughs> from a, from a I think from a scientific standpoint you know can you make a a more elegant theory which describes what you see with fewer free parameters right? and going from 15 free parameters to five, 10 to the 500 <laughs> uh, iterations of those is not all that elegant um, however you know the anthropic principle has some value I mean obviously if they did happen you would they would be unable to be observed um, and so if there was some process that was randomly making these things out of time in huge quantities uh, this is the only one that we could observe so thus the the fine-tuning of the variables it, it's all very very much fun philosophical speculation um, but I despair of it if ever having some way to test them. Uh, yeah, and here I have uh, here I actually have a little contribution from my own research. Back and, and actually, it's related to nuclear power as well. I know that you have uh, people listening here who are uh, fond of nuclear power. Uh, when neutrons smash into atomic nuclei. Uh, at certain energies, you get an increased probability for a reaction. That's called a resonance. It turns out that there are many such resonances when neutrons are out flying close to atomic nuclei. Uh, when nuclear power was conceived in the 1950s, people realized that to build efficient nuclear power reactors, you needed to know all these resonances. You, you can live without them if you just want to do what Fermi did in a, in a squash court in 1942 just to prove the principle. But if you're going to build a machine that produces one gigawatt of electricity and doesn't blow up like Chernobyl, you'd better know all these resonances. At that time, there was no theory that could predict them. And therefore, they had to call in 10,000 people like me, experimental physicists, that simply measured every resonance there was. In the 1980s, uh, the mathematical theory of chaos had progressed a lot, uh, strongly nonlinear physics. And then theoreticians like Hans Weidenmüller, uh, Oriol Boigas, and some others, uh, they started to realize that, hey, these resonances which we see in neutron scattering of nuclei, that resembles a chaos phenomenon. And it, it, they could take all those measurements that originally were done for an application, nobody thought that was of importance for fundamental physics. And the real, they could show that atomic nuclei in a certain energy interval, they are truly chaotic phenomena. It resembles the weather. Uh, but that also means that because this is a quantized chaotic phenomenon, it means that you cannot determine all the parameters involved and you cannot you cannot derive fully the force that that uh, builds up atomic nuclei that is beyond possibility because of nature itself one thing one conclusion of this was that this quote unquote solved by not solving one of the major problems we had in cosmology uh, we believe that, that hydrogen and helium was formed in the Big Bang some 13.7 billion years back and a little, little lithium. 
whereas all the other elements have been created by these atomic nuclei smashing into each other and fusing and reacting in various different ways. Uh, however, Fred Hoyle, he pointed out in, I think it was 1967, that we have no credible idea for how carbon is created. And carbon is really the backbone of organic chemistry. That is the chemistry you need for live human beings and animals and plants and whatnot. Uh, it, but he also said that there is a pos possibility. Suppose we have an unknown resonance where three... Uh, three helium nuclei happen to come close to each other. The situation is that two helium nuclei cannot fuse together. Uh, the laws of nature are such that, that a double helium nucleus, that is beryllium-8, it doesn't keep together. And therefore it's impossible for three to smack together. However, for Hoyle said, suppose that two helium nuclei come close to each other, instead of just bouncing off, off each other, they are shaking a little bit in a resonance for some time, and then they split apart. If that happens, then a third uh, helium nucleus could come and join during their disco dance, and then all three of them could fuse together and carbon could be created. This is called the three alpha fusion process. Uh, at that time, people said, hey, Hoyle, you're crazy. But that, that resonance was discovered a few years later. And that was actually the first time the anthropic principle had been used to predict something in physics. Because Hoyle said, well, we exist. Carbon, at, carbon nuclei exist. There, there must be a way to, to, to construct carbon nuclei. But now we come to the interesting point here, uh, and there I've been involved doing measurements myself. This situation when two helium nuclei come close to each other, and instead of just bouncing off each other, they are shaking a little bit, and they are, they take some time before they split up. That time it takes is extremely crucial for the formation of carbon in universe. Because if that time would have would persist just a percent longer or something like that, uh, then carbon would would form so quickly that you would burn out of helium in in the universe so fast uh, that that the entire universe the game would be over too fast for intelligent life to appear on the market. And also, if, if that, if that uh, shaking would go a little bit in the other direction when it comes to time, then this process would be too weak for carbon to, to exist. So, so here we have one of these fine tunings again, which is really, really, really narrow. But the point with this one is that it is in a chaotic regime of the nucleus. And that means we can never find a working mathematical theory that describes this phenomenon. Because nature is such in this situation that it's beyond possibility to describe with mathematics. So here we have a situation that we can, we can realize, yeah, this exists, but we will never be able to tell why it, why it does so.
If I now uh, allow to be a bit theological, uh, there are. It's common that that Christian people say that, oh yeah, this is great. This cannot be explained by science. That means yes, God exists. Hooray! The problem with that approach, God though, the yeah, the problem with that approach, though, is that if God exists. God exists in the unknown, but God exists in the known as well. If you only place God in the unknown, it means that God always has to retract. As soon as you discover something, God is out from that part and so on. Uh, it's not a great solution. No, it isn't. <laughs> you, as science advances, your, your God disappears. Yeah. Well, it, it's good if you're an atheist. <laughs> <laughs> Well, my, my, my point with this, this, with this discussion is that uh, this phenomenon, the, the three, three helium nuclei that fuse together, in that case, it's not just that we haven't found an answer why this reaction is as strong as it is, but it has already been proven that we will never ever find out. Think about that. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's beyond not knowing. It's proven that we will never know this. Science cannot answer that question. And, and that's, that's a bit um, tough for the stomach if you're a scientist. Indeed, I had heard of the, the, the Fred Hoyle story about the discovery of the carbon resonance, uh, but I, didn't, I hadn't heard about the, the chaotic... The, the chaos portion of that. Yeah, I that came later. That, that came with. in the mid-1980s, that understanding. That is, uh, this, is this has been a very uh, enlightening conversation, and I appreciate you sharing your views on uh, science and religion with, with our listeners. Uh, and I'm thankful that you're out uh, trying to influence politicians, hopefully about nuclear energy. Uh, <laughs> This is, uh, it's been fun. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, before we end, uh, I have one question I, I sometimes like to ask my guests. Uh, and I like to understand what, what kind of science fiction do you enjoy reading? What's, what's your favorite uh, science fiction? That's quick. None. I, I don't like science fiction at all. Ah, okay. Uh, but movies, movies, Star, Star Trek, Trek, Star Wars, Star Wars anything like that? that? I've never found that interesting. A very uh, well-grounded individual, it, then. It's it's an uncommon view among among scientists. Many of them love science fiction. I don't. Uh, but may I steal a few minutes and talk about um, fundamentalism, the Bible, and nuclear power combined? That sounds very interesting. Please, yeah, give, please give, tell uh, us given uh, given your podcast here. Uh, yeah, I'm not a fundamentalist, uh, and I'm trying to uh, to make people stop being fundamentalist by bringing up a very strange nuclear power related piece of research. In 1972, uh, a bunch there there was a shipment of uranium coming to the port in Antwerp in Belgium. Uh, natural uranium has 0.72% uranium-235 and the rest is uranium-238. And this shipment had 0.71% uranium-235, not a big difference. However, people started to wonder what's going on here. Because if you have too little uranium-235, it could have been somebody had been there stealing a little bit trying to make a nuclear weapon. 
So people, so it was investigated, and it turned out that all this came from a place in Gabon called Oklo. Uh, what had happened was that two billion years back in time, two thousand million years back in time, there had been a natural reactor working in the ground of Oklo, Gabon. That couldn't happen today because the, the enrichment of uranium-235 is too small. But at that time, there were more uranium-235. It decays over time. So when, when uranium was formed in a supernova explosion in a, in a sun close to you, some 4.5 billion years ago, it was 50%. But it's, now it's 0.7%. But two billion years ago, it was sufficiently large concentration that you could have a natural reactor when the rain fall, came falling in and so on. And this has been proven beyond doubt because when you split at uranium, you create a large number of new elements, which are about half as heavy. Cesium, strontium, krypton, iodine and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And you can see the remnants of those elements in, in the ore in Oklo Gabon. So you can see that, yeah, fission has really taken place. Uh, hmm. But this, this tells you that planet Earth must be at least two billion years old. There is no other way you can explain this. And that means if you're now uh, the type of fundamentalist that says that Bishop Usher in 1664, he computed that uh, the world started in, in the year 4004 before, uh, before Christ, Sunday, September the 29th, probably three o'clock in the afternoon. If you find that to be literally <laughs> true, now you, this is not just bad science, it's bad theology. Because if you say that the age of the, of the, of the earth is 6,000 years, then it means if you believe in God, you must believe in a God that deliberately tries to fool you. Because then you must believe in a God that has taken ore in Oklo Gabon in Africa and put it, you have put lots of elements in it so that it really looks like there was a natural reactor two billion years ago. And that's just to fool you. What is the usefulness? What is the purpose of such a God? Isn't it smarter than to say that the Bible, when we read it, I mean, just, just read the first chapter of Genesis. That is not a scientific paper. I have written and read so many scientific papers, and boy, are they much more dry. Yes, they are. Uh, that's not the way you write science. It's poetry for you to realize that God has created the world and God did it for you. That, so that, for me, undermines uh, fundamentalism. We have to read the scripture with different eyes than saying that this is a scientific description, dry one, describing exactly what happened. It's about purpose, not about exactly how, but why. Yes, indeed. You, that's sort of a, a literalistic and fundamentalistic interpretation of an obviously allegorical passage uh, gets you to this reductio ad absurdum. They have to be believing in a deceiver God. And, uh, you know, <laughs> that obviously is poor theology. <laughs>
I think that's uh, that sort of a, a breakdown has to be used more frequently and when uh, confronting fundamentalisms about about their uh, their interpretation. So you can't you can't answer all of the questions that they pose about science because fundamentally there's an infinite number of uh, questions. Every time you find one more answer, that means you know two more questions on either side of it. Uh, so you can't defend by saying we know everything in science because we don't know everything. But what you can look at is this the the inconsistencies in such a uh, a naive literalistic interpretation, and 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 bring those to light. So yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, I like the the Oklo. Uh, reactor as, as, a, as a good point of evidence. So thank you so much for coming and, and sharing your ideas uh, with our listeners. I uh, appreciate you coming on on the show and uh, for, for coming on the show uh, I'll, I'll send you a Rational View t-shirt if you'd like. Thank you. Uh, you can, uh, you can uh, spread the, the Rational View to, to everyone in Sweden and and good luck with your, your nuclear work. Uh, I hope it, it bears fruit and you can swing that political issue back to rationality. I have to wear that shirt and visit the Swedish parliament. Excellent. Thank you. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my patron page at patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Thanks for listening.